0: Sign up to Rough Trade Club, the ultimate subscription for vinyl enthusiasts. Get money off online and in store and access to sold out events and discounts at Rough Trade East, Rough Trade West, Bristol, Liverpool, and all over the UK. Join Rough Trade Club plus new music to receive an exclusive variant of their album of the month every month. Head to roughtrade.com/slash/club, and when you use the voucher code CLUB101POD, you'll get a third off your first three months. That's at roughtrade.com/slash/club, and you can get a third off your first three months by using the voucher code CLUB101POD. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that Distro Kid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. Distro Kid
2: Tony Hawks actually introduced me to both X and Ramones which some people not, might not believe but I never got into the Ramones otherwise and it was only because of Tony Hawks that I heard him.
0: Well I think most people get into the Ramones because of a t-shirt
2: design. Yeah true that's also a, a good way to get into the Ramones. <laughs> so I wouldn't feel embarrassed about that. I don't feel embarrassed. I don't feel embarrassed. Don't don't mistake don't mistake my honesty as some kind of confession. <laughs> sorry, Megan just came in and, and said oh, I got into Guns N' Roses No, I got into the dam through Guns N' Roses but I didn't realise you you're recording so sorry about that, yes. now I'll let you get on <laughs>
0: You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. I've got Em Foster on the line here who's going to tell us about some of her jobs that she's had throughout her life, as well as some important stuff about social injustice issues that are on her mind, that are on all of our minds. The song beneath this is What If The Problem Was You?, from one of the two EPs that Nervous have released, recorded and released from their homes over lockdown. You should go and find those on their band camp. Before that, their album Tough Crowd came out on Big Scary Monsters earlier this year. We talk about how she made that, how she wrote that and how they... How they recorded that with Neil Kennedy down at the ranch in Southampton. And we talk about the albums before Tough Crowd as well. Everything Dies and Permanent Rainbow, both of which M had a big hand in producing. It's all across the board, really. I'm a big fan of Nervous. We grew up not too far away from each other, kind of. Oh, and she's been a delivery driver for a supermarket over lockdown. So actually, this could be a well-rounded podcast, I think. Signature Brew have been brewing music-inspired beers since 2011 You may know them from their collaboration beers Brewed with the likes of Mastodon, Idols, Slaves, Mogwai Enter Shikari, who we talk about in this podcast, and many more As 101 part-time jobs listeners, you can get 10% of all their beers By ordering from their website, signaturebrew.co.uk And using the code 101podcast at checkout That's all capitals Alright, here we go This is M from Nervous Enjoy
2: first rock song that I ever listened to that I was like, oh, like a punk rock song was actually My Own Worst Enemy by Lit, which was on song. a compilation cassette called Fresh Hits 99, which obviously came out in 1998. I used my compass from school to mark on the tape where that song was so that I could like get the tape to that bit before putting it in the tape player.
0: I thought you were about to say you were going to pick up your compass and draw it into your arm like a oh, tattoo.
2: No, 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 no. That would, that that No, that wasn't me. That wasn't my kind of thing. It is now, um, but not anymore. Not It wasn't me then. Now I'd tattoo anything on me. Um, and,
0: of course, I'm probably, you know, I'm going to embarrass you now and say that you are one of the best stick-and-poke artists I've ever seen.
2: Thanks. I appreciate that. I, I, I do really enjoy stick-and-poke. It is quite time um time consuming and therefore you know if if I'm doing a a day of tattooing I do a lot less tattooing than some someone who sat next to me in a shop might be doing but yeah
0: I think the thing that was interesting to me is that I don't know if you were doing it much before posting it online so I only really saw you stick and poking when you started posting it on Instagram but you were instantly good
2: oh I wasn't instantly good um I wasn't instantly good. There's like, there's a lot of stuff that I've done on uh, myself and Megan actually, that hasn't been so great, but at the same time that, you know, I've been doing it for four over four years now. So while it, you know, it might seem like uh, it's come out of nowhere. It it definitely hasn't (laughs) at the same time. Um, I do have a sort of autistic tendency, and I am autistic, so I'm not just saying that as if I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what autistic people are like, but I do have an autistic tendency to sort of hyper-focus on stuff and uh, just do it (laughs) forever, Mm. uh, which helps with creative projects, I think.
0: That word hyper-focus has come up on a recent interview I've done for one of these, and it does seem to be a common thing in creative people, when did you start sort of thinking that, when were you diagnosed with, with autism?
2: At uh, age 27. So pretty late on really. Um it's only four years ago. So yeah, it was good. It, it was, it, it was nice to have that understanding uh, so I could give myself a break because I spent most of my childhood sort of uh, not functioning in the way that everyone else around me functioned, and then subsequently being like punished for it by my teachers. So I end up in detention a lot for being like lazy, disorganised, and then that obviously meant went on to sort of disruptive. And yeah, so the system's not
0: designed for for people with things like that. You know, no, there's just this this, this sweeping assumption that everyone's the same, and of course that's just entirely not true.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's a one size fits all approach, isn't it? The way that, the way that the education system works. And that's why you end up with things like the, uh, school to prison pipeline and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the way that, you know, uh, black people particularly, um, face issues at school because those systems are the same. It's, they're the same systems designed by the same people as those who design the prison system and you know, everything like that.
0: Montessori schools is something that I've, I mean, I've, I've just recently learned about, you know, the schools coming at it from different approaches. If you're good at this, then just do that rather than do maths that you're not, that you can't, you know, that doesn't come naturally to you.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, my mum's my my best mate when we were at, at school, um, I've got a sister who's like six years younger than me. She went to a Montessori nursery and stuff. Went to the same schools that I did, but... Um, that kind of more holistic approach to um, learning that, learning in a non-academic way, I think, is really interesting and important, I think, because a lot of the time people would describe things like art or music or drama as being like um, DOS subjects or whatever. But for me, like I mean, I was I was I was good at I was good at maths and I was like good at all that stuff and like in terms of that I was good at it. But I know there was people that weren't. And to describe those subjects that are um, so much more to do with emotional intelligence and expression and to, to group them as sort of like you know DOS subjects and I think a lot of educational institutions do that. I think it's crap. So I really like the the idea of a Montessori school putting the focus on those things um mm. because i think that there is not there isn't enough um focus in education on actually uh, emotional intelligence and 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 you know growing those skills i was i, I count myself very lucky and that when at the time i was growing up as you know because you're from the same area there was there was loads and loads and loads of stuff to 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 do if you're into alternative music and when i say loads there was like a gig every. Two weeks, I reckon, at least, for a large portion of when I was growing up. And that would be at, like, the Pioneer Youth Club or um, Pump House. Um, And it was... We'd have all the household name bands coming through and local bands, bands that weren't local from, like, North Hertfordshire that was, like, as far away as you could get. And it seemed like that was the place that everyone kind of went to. And that's where I met most of my friends and also how I got into doing what I do now, which is playing music, obviously. But um, that kind of community outside of, uh, outside of school was something that I don't think a lot of people have these days.
0: Right. I feel like I learned a lot from that world and, and I probably put it down to the bigger bands, like being Entry Shikari or Gallows that those bands Did it wasn't because they were highly publicized or they were on the front cover of Kerrang magazine? I've never been involved. I've never been that interested in fashion per se. I was interested that I perceived as something that they loved. They could do it practically full time. You know, you'd look. I remember going onto Enter Shikari's MySpace page and looking at their gigs list and being like, "Fucking hell, that's going four months into the future."
2: Yeah, for real. And you think like that's that's a that was a real thing for me as well. Seeing. Seeing people that are you know they're all that they're, they're all like maybe five, five, six, seven years older than me, um, but seeing people from from where from where we're from doing that, I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could play music full time. And yeah, it was super inspiring. And and those bands came from the fact that we had that that local grassroots community music scene that actually existed because that's how all those people met each other. Mm. Um, and it seems sustainable. It seems or seemed.
0: It seemed sustainable.
2: Yeah, it did. It did seem sustainable, which is probably not the case now for either, either, you know, from a perspective of, um, playing music full time or actually there being a grassroots <laughs> music community kind of thing.
0: I wonder if it's got a thing to do with our I mean we're roughly the same age. Um but I wonder if it's got something to do with with our like naivety of of being 17 18 and being like, "Ooh, that person on stage is going home and paying rent with it."
2: No, I mean, I I think that for for a lot of people when you're younger, you look at a band and if that they, if they're in Kerrang and if they have their CDs in HMV, then, you know, they made it. Um and I think that that was probably more real uh, when when we were teenagers than it is now. I think that there are there still people making money off music, and like you know there's gallows famously signed a, a one million pound deal they got a, They' got like a £1 million one million pound advance for their uh, Great Britain record i think that's, I think that's public knowledge. The
0: story that I know is that they're in a taxi. It's, it's, it's some kind of, like, layer cake story, isn't it? It's like they're in a taxi going to sign one deal. They get a call from the intern or the or the daughter or son of Warners or whatever it came out on being like, turn the taxi around, come sign with us. <laughs>
2: we- yeah, that's what I found. They were they were on their way to sign with, like, Universal or something and then Warner offered them a million to go and sign with them. So they did.
0: Which is funny because they were a punk band.
2: Yeah. But I think, you know... I- I think that was probably one of the last deals like that to ever exist.
0: I, I say incredulously, "They're a punk band." It's because, like, how can you, how can you, um, you know, solidify the future of of a punk rock band? In nature, it's like a flash in a bottle kind of vibe, yeah.
2: you know. Well, I think that actually, they with with what Lags has done with Venn Records, I think it's wicked. Like, because obviously, Venn put out the first Nervous record, but Lags essentially since that has started up started up then and, and used that as a way to put out music for guys. So they're like yeah. completely self sufficient now. Right. Which is incredible. If you can do it. I think that's the best way to do it. Get a massive deal, get dropped and then do whatever the hell you want.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: You get a million pound advance, you don't have to work for a little bit. But then at the same time, one of the bands that I've been in has been given like a forty five thousand pound advance. And that's wow. that's not enough for people to even you know, live on and, and I'm not, I'm not turning my nose up at it, but uh, it does go very quickly once you've like paid for a record and you've done all that stuff. Um,
0: I suppose there's the tendency there as well to get a 45,000 pound advance and then be like, well, we can spend however much we want recording it. And then, you know, before you know it, there's not
2: anything left. Yeah. But obviously like that's not nervous and nervous have done it the complete opposite way around. Like we eat. Before Permanent Rainbow, each member put in 130 quid each to, to dry hire Titan, which is run by Steve from um, Gold Key. And...
0: My cousin used to work there.
2: Oh, really? I worked there as well for a bit. And so I picked up, um, you know, I, I was basically working as the person on the desk and who would like clean up the clean up the rehearsal rooms and I worked at that studio for a bit and just picked up enough knowledge to be able to record um the first nervous record and so yeah we paid 130 quid each to dry hire the studio on like a mates rates thing because I was working there at the time and Mm. um recorded it recorded it all ourselves how were you learning about the engineering
0: stuff I mean I remember some acoustic stuff that you were putting out you know, when I, I think I was 16 when I, when I heard it online and I, I'm sure you recorded it yourself. Did you have some kind of engineering knowledge?
2: I didn't record that myself. That was recorded by a friend in Leeds called Chris Wilson. Um, mm. He recorded those ones. But when I started working at Titan um basically I was helping out, I started helping out on sessions. So like, I would, I would help Steve out with, with various bits and like, I'd edit things and do this and that. And I think, like, I didn't do loads on projects, but I remember I um. he asked me to edit the takes for the Cement Matters album. And, I, and I, so I, I basically sort of comped a bunch of takes for that. And I also helped out with the Dios Mio recordings at the time as well. So it was cool. I'd had a really oh and I did some of my own stuff. So what I did was I actually this room that was like full of like fiberglass and bits of broken crap <laughs> I turned into a, a little control room. Um and basically like painted the walls and like made made my own like acoustic treatments with bits of wood and um like fiberglass and and uh fabric and like made this room into what could be potentially used as a control room and started working out of there and recording other bands. Um, cool. In Titan. This is still in Titan. Yeah, this is in Titan. So this was like a, this is like a storage cupboard that you made into a studio B. Yeah. I did everything like putting the linoleum on the floor and like, you know, putting the skirting down and like turning it into an actual room. Cause it was just a, a grubby dusty cupboard with no light. <laughs> And so I started doing stuff out of there. I started like writing and like I, I am. Um, the computer I use now to to do stuff is the computer I, I used then because Steve wanted to upgrade his. So he sold me his old Mac, his iMac for like five hundred quid, with Logic, Logic Nine on it, and that's what I still use. <laughs> it's got like a massive smash in the screen, <laughs> but I still use that. I still use that setup.
0: Talk about making
2: your own job description, right? Yeah, for real. I feel I feel like. Um, a lot of my time being able to play music has also involved me creating my own jobs in and around, um, mm. because it's not easy to hold down a job when you're when you're playing music full time. It's
0: also expensive hiring someone to do that stuff. Oh
2: yeah, hundred percent. Like we wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. Like the first time we, the first album we did ourselves and paid five hundred and forty pounds to rent out a studio, and we did it ourselves. The second time we paid Bob Cooper seven hundred and fifty quid to do the drums and mix and master it but i recorded everything else in my bedroom <laughs> so we didn't even hire a studio for the rest of the album we just did drums on everything guys with bob so that was 750 quid and then we did the last record tough crowd with neil kennedy which was the first time we've all been in a recording studio and someone else has recorded it
0: uh, from my knowledge you you write the songs don't you yeah yeah so wh- how, what's the process there what's the what's what, what's the structure with Neil, uh, yeah, of, of you going into the studio. Did, did you practice much before it? Was there much writing in the studio? We had
2: two practices, two like hour long practices before the album. Um, so I'd written the songs and sent demos over, and we'd we'd run through them like once or twice. Jack does a lot of Jack does a lot of work on drum parts um, on his own, and we'll you know he'll he'll get some kind of rudimentary crap that I send over to him. It's really sort of. Um, a vibe guide in terms of the drum part because I can program drums, but I'm not a drummer. Uh, so it's like a vibe guide and then and then Jack will, record, will write his part. Um But yeah, we had two practices where Jack had pretty much written all of his parts for the record. I'd obviously knew what I was doing. Lucinda got in and knew what they were doing. And then we went into the studio and there was like a lot of, I think that there's a lot of uh, stuff that comes from the recording process that you don't get in the writing process. But Neil was basically like the perfect person to facilitate that. So like, there's a, there's a lot of backing vocals on on Tough Crowd, and um, yeah, a lot of like tambourine and weird noises. I think, and you know, like the the production bits. Not that it's overproduced, but he was just able to facilitate the stuff that we did want to throw on as when we wanted to throw it on. Um,
0: There's a lot of Weezerisms in it.
2: Yeah, you reckon? I totally. I uh, that wasn't intentional, really. But I, I think um, just before I started writing that record, I played in "Say It Ain't Bro" um, and did a Weezer cover set with um, Nicola from Doe, Lucinda from Cult Dreams, Catherine from Fresh, and Phoebe from Happy Accidents slash Kid And so it was like, I feel like maybe I was just used to playing those, those kind of shapes and chords and stuff. But um, I don't, it definitely wasn't intentional, but definitely like, you, if you go to flies the video, it's like, oh, cool cover of whatever song, cool cover, cool Weezer cover. New Weezer's sick.
0: Sorry, sorry. Sorry, I've just been so stereotypical for that.
2: No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. But if that's what people think it sounds like, that's what people think it sounds like. I
0: mean, it's a good thing, you know. Like they're one of the most iconic bands
2: of our lives. Yeah, they've written a load of a load of shit though, as well, which is.
0: <laughs> but Paul, Paul, who plays keys in in Nervous, runs LP Cafe, and I remember I went into CD Warehouse um, when I was like ten or eleven on Watford High Street, and it might be it might be my memory playing tricks with me, but I'm absolutely certain that he was working behind the counter there. I'm, I'm sure of it. And then when I found out later that he did, in fact, work at CD Warehouse, that kind of confirmed it for me. Um, and the reason why I say that is because he started LP Cafe from, you know, just uh, himself and Layla, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, um, he also gave me a job, which was nice. I think, like, Paul was the person who sold me uh, a Soulfly record, which sucked, from CD Warehouse. It was It was so bad. I don't have many CDs that I've thought, this is total shit. But Soulfly was one of them. And the other one was that um, Goggle Bordello album. Yeah,
0: Start Wearing Purple.
2: No, not that one. It was the one before that. I think it was called Gypsy Punks.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: I think that's what it was called. Um, But I thought it was crap. Uh, So between the Goggle Bordello album, Soulfly, and (laughs) what other albums have I absolutely hated? Oh, P.O.D right
0: <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah.
2: But yeah, I, I wanted to take it back, but I'd only spent five on it. But one 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 record he did sell me when he was working there was uh, Call to Arms by Sick of It All, which is an absolute banger of a record. It's really yeah. good. Um, but yeah, Paul worked there. And then we worked at HMV together for a bit. He was like, he was the downstairs stock guy. You know, in a shop, when you get like uh, an order, that comes in the back way and you've got to like put it on the system and like change all the stock and stuff no but yeah oh you probably haven't worked in a shop have you to be fair well you- <laughs> oh
0: I did I worked at Millet's or Blacks and I did this between tours between Great Cynics tours and I did not listen I did not use my ears in my induction I remember the first day someone came in and they were like yeah I'm looking for a camping bag that takes about you know 50-75 litres and I said what are you putting water in there for <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so yeah, he was downstairs, and then I, I um, I got a Christmas temping job, and we worked together there, which was fun. I thought I was going to be working downstairs with him, but they put me on the shop floor, which is a bit of a shame, um, because it meant I had to speak to the customers. But the good, the good thing about that was I didn't have a um, HMB uniform T-shirt that was big enough for me to fit in. Cause I take like a double XL. And like they didn't have anything to fit me. So they were like, well just wear something like fairly like, you know, smart, casual, just just to work, just because, you know, we can't get you any uniform. And I was only a Christmas temp, so they were like, they couldn't be bothered to order anything in. And um it was great because everyone thought that I was the manager, because I just was like walking around without a uniform on and people <laughs> I would, What I would do is I'd just walk. i walk around and around the shop um, without doing really anything. Um, like occasionally looked at, like sort of like kneel down and sort of like flick through stock as if I was checking that everything was okay. And even the people who actually worked at HMV thought I was the manager there. I um, thought I was like a new manager that was like coming into like I don't know like a, you know, do a little checkup. Uh, and uh, yeah it was great but then when people wanted to speak to me, when when customers wanted to speak to me and I didn't know anything um, I think they were a bit confused but then I found, like one person came up to me with a a list and one of the things they pointed to was like uh, Crackling Fireplace DVD and I was like what is it, like a comedy or like a film or Because, you know, everything's put in sections by genre. And I was like, I've never heard of that. Like, what is it? Is it? Is it? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then it dawned on me that what they wanted was just, you know, when you have like an ambient crackling fireplace.
0: They've got it on Netflix.
2: Yeah. They they wanted a DVD of that. And I was like, right. (laughs) But but I was trying to find it in like, you know, um, is it in world cinema? (laughs) The subtitles section, you know, like is it a, <laughs> <laughs> is it a children's program? Uh, don't know what it is.
0: I wonder. I'm not. I'm not sure this happens anymore. Maybe I'm being a grumpy bastard, but I feel like it doesn't really happen anymore. Like how it used to when you'd go in and be like, I mean, I got into Linkin Park because I went in to HMV and Milton Keynes and was like, oh, could I get the you know, could you show me where I can't find the Limp Bizkit CDs. The guy said, um, it's sold out, but I think you'll like this band, Linkin Park. And he was like, you'll like this. And it was hybrid theory. Um, and I feel like that's so, how so many people got into new records was from people at record stores being like, oh, you like this? You like that?
2: I think it does happen. If, you, if you're the kind of person who still goes to record stores, like I will frequently go in, and and like ask for a recommendation based based on things I've been listening to, mm. no one knows new releases and like that kind of stuff better than people who work in record stores, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and it's the kind of thing that has generally been replaced by algorithms, like people who people who bought this also bought, or if you like this, you might like this. But it's just so impersonal because you could always remember. When someone said, "Ah, oh, tell you what, you might like this."
0: Banquet Records do it really well with their mail order. They always have a handwritten note saying, "Or they always would." I'm sure they do it now. Haven't ordered a record in a while, but you know,
2: they've actually had to stop because they're sending so much stuff out with with COVID. Really? Yeah, I got um, I got FM by the Skints through the other day, and they've got like a sorry that we can't do our handwritten notes at the moment. We are just like so busy. Wow, great record, FM. Yeah, it is. I remember you worked in construction. Um, less construction than destruction. Oh yeah. Um, I did. I worked. At, I did some temping for a, a company called Labor Ready, who's since closed down due to health and safety. But you basically go in there, and it was kind of like a job centre kind of place, except they would place you that day. Um, so if you were willing to work, you You walked into this place and they'd be like, right, we've got a couple of people who need to do this and here, a couple of people need to do this here. Uh, these people are going to be driving you there. And so, yeah, I ended up drilling. <laughs> I'm not surprised I got shut down for health and safety regulations because basically on my first day there, they took me to Reading to a Subaru garage. And um they gave me a pneumatic drill. Um, you know, like a jackhammer. Mm. And I'm like, here you go, this bit marked out on the concrete floor. Can you just um can you just dig that out? And they just gave me a, a drill. And I am just wearing like trainers. And I'd never used the pneumatic drill before. And they're quite difficult because you have to you have to push down with them for them to do anything, but you also have to lift them up back onto the thing you're trying to get rid of. So once you've got rid of a bit of the the concrete, you have to the the drill bit will obviously like slide down into that little gap that it's made, right? And then you have to pick the rocks up, chuck them in the skip, whatever, and then you go back to it. But you're trying to get rid of the bit next to it, but so you've got to lift the drill bit up to stop it from slipping into the hole that's already made and push down on that bit, all the while um, operating a pneumatic drill, which is really heavy and it moves around quite a lot. So yeah, it was it was an interesting place to work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did that for a bit. What else have I done? I did some warehouse stuff. That was good. I remember you saying this one little anecdote. Oh my God, yeah. So that was Isaac, this guy that I work with. Uh, Isaac was like, look, I haven't got any money for lunch. Can you lend? I, and I had five pounds on me. And that was it. That was all the money I had. So I was like, yeah, I can give you 250 for lunch. But I'm using this for the bus home as well. So if you can, like, pay me back <laughs> when we get back. Because basically what happened was you'd go to work, come back, and they'd give you a check. But they'd also offer a check cashing service on that day for, like – um you know, like 15% or something. So they would I, I did an eight-hour day and got paid £44. And I think if I got it cashed in Labour Ready at the end of the day, which is what they used to do, I'd get like 38 quid. What a scam! Anyway, uh, so when we got back, Labour Ready was closed, so we couldn't pick up our pay and couldn't get the cash. But Isaac couldn't pay me back, so I I, had, I only had 50p left, and I was like, well, and bear in mind I've been drilling holes in, in Reading all day, I think like, I was like, I can, I've got a seven mile walk home, I can either walk it and use the 50p for a payphone, or I can buy a bottle of water and then just walk the whole thing. And then not call anyone to try and pick me up. Because I didn't have any credit on my phone as well, as pay as you go. And I I didn't have any money to get it because I didn't have any money in my account. I literally had the £5 in my pocket. I walked home and I thought, oh, I'll just use a payphone. Between Watford and Chisel Green, which is where I was living with my parents at the time, there wasn't a single payphone that worked. And I remember walking into one of these payphone boxes. And um, there was just... I was like, I can't believe I've got it. It It's like, you know... You see cartoons, and you see like a mirage of like a uh, like a tap or like a water fountain in the in the desert. It was that (laughs) I walked into the phone box, and it was just that it was just it was everything apart from the phone. So the, the the wire that had like that sort of like corrugated like metal casing, it was just swinging. It was just swinging with two sort of exposed wires at the bottom. Because someone had nicked the phone off the end of it. So, yeah, I just walked all the way home. Grabbed myself a bottle of Ebrian, which you could get for 50p back in those days. And um walked home. And this was in the time,
0: I feel like this was in a time between you playing in bands. Is that right? Yeah, this was
2: before I was in, this was before I was playing in bands, really. I, I was like, I was doing music, but I wasn't doing it regularly enough. Um, I wanted it I wanted to be doing it more but but wasn't
0: did you feel a bit not putting words in your mouth but did you feel a bit like lost after school
2: oh 100% because like I I, school has a structure and I went to uni I dropped out um because there was no structure and I I deal quite well with structure which is why I love touring because you know every day you're going to wake up drive for a few hours turn up load in sound check set up merch play your show that kind of structure is really, really helpful for me.
0: I wonder if it helps because you're a driver as well. I mean, so many people I have on here are like, I can't deal with the anti-structure of tour, but I feel a lot of those people are the people who are playing. So, you know, they get, wake up, walk into a van and they got nothing to do until 7.30 that evening. Whereas I feel like you're very hands-on. So it is actually a structure for you.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. And like, I, I think like, Driving is something that sort of saved me from losing, losing my head on tour because, um, yeah, it gives you something to concentrate on in the daytime. <laughs> like, you know, you've got to be driving the van, so you're just driving. Yeah, for real. Place. Although that can be a little bit mind-numbing at times, I think it's uh, mm. easier to be able to drive than to have to sit down in a van and stare out the window or, you know, play Switch or fiddle with your phone and like endlessly scroll or whatever
0: the issue I had was I'd never felt in control of myself
2: yeah I definitely I get that like I think like I did a bunch of tours before I I drove them where I felt such a deep amount of anxiety about what if the van crashes can I trust this person to drive the van like do you know what I mean and then and then you'd be flicking through and then be like oh there's a a tour van has crashed it and you'd be like ah so (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and then other people not wearing their seatbelts in the van or whatever, and you're like, "You're going to come into me if we crash," and I can't stop thinking about that. But I'm also too anxious to ask you to put your seatbelt on, and like mm. <laughs> the kind of the way that anxiety sort of uh, takes hold of you in the situation like that is is a lot, and I think it's due to lack of control.
0: Hundred percent. So you started being in bands <clears throat> pretty late. You you were involved in the Watford music scene. I remember you being friends with the promoters and friends with the bands. But when did you, you know, when did you really start playing in bands?
2: Well, I, I've i played in bands since I was about 14. So not really that late. Because I started, I started, my first band was the B-Team, um, which was like a ska punk band.
0: Rival ska punk band?
2: Rival to F-Bats, yeah. Um, and then we did, I was also in Dexter's Fish for a bit, which was another ska punk band.
0: Very ska name.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's how I met Dan McDougall, who... Who could only play in a ska punk band, with yeah. that name? Dan um, <laughs> McDougall, and me and Jim from the B-team started a band with Dan McDougall called Kid Cosmic um, in, like, 2006. So I was still at school. Uh, I think they were still at school as well. We were, at, like, college age, so, like, 17, 18 years old. And we started touring then. And Dan has since done loads. He's the drummer for Liam Gallagher now. Um, no.
0: Yeah. Seriously?
2: Yeah, Dan from Kid Cosmic slash Dexter's Fish is the, uh, is the drummer for Liam Gallagher. Cool, right? Excellent. Yeah, so we, we started touring when we were that age. and like um, It was all self-booked and we did it all in a Renault Cleo. In like t- 2006, like driving up and down the M1, we played places like uh, Debbie's Music Bar in Nantwich and like uh, Hotel California in, in Warrington. And do you know what I mean? Like the weirdest places.
0: <laughs> but I found that like those are the places that are willing to give you more money.
2: A hundred percent. And they're also the people with a more interested and engaged crowd. Right because they
0: don't care who it is they're like stoked to this music it's like an old person's bar isn't it where they're like yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. musicians
2: yeah it's great i think that like i don't ever want to play a venue again after covid i just want to play places like that <laughs> i don't want to, i don't want to have to go onto stage and prove myself in front of a panel of judges which is what i feel like a lot of shows are i i just want to go and enjoy myself in a room with other people who want to enjoy themselves. <laughs> I
0: understand. I understand. I feel like I get that sense in Germany.
2: For real. That, that is, it. like the UK has a very strange culture and I think it's partly to do with the way that we're brought up to kind of, you know, compete rather than collaborate and sort of um, everything's a competition and, and I feel like it's quite difficult to enjoy yourself. It's so true. British people are incredibly inhibited as well, I find. And I think that you go to somewhere like, you know, uh, Braunschweig in, in Germany, and people are there to have fun. <laughs> and, you know, it's... It, it, the, the whole culture is, is different in terms of, like... You know, I don't think I've, I've spent much time in German venues when you're in, like, separate backstage rooms even on the bigger tours that I've done like there'll be one big green room and everyone's in there and everyone eats and whereas in the UK it's very much like right separate for every artist and I, I understand the need for you know privacy in your own space or whatever and you can have that but I think that the idea that it's all kind of a bit more communal and the rider is a big communal thing like makes much more sense and obviously um, reflects the kind of culture of of music that exists in Europe and other places outside of the UK. Um,
0: Yeah. It it makes me think, I mean, a bit far out, but it's a bit like, you know, the UK's checkered colonizing vanquishing past. Like (laughs) I wonder if it manifests itself in our personalities like that. And we don't even know it.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent does. It literally does. Cause we're all sort of taught that we are, uh, individually exceptional and, and can be you know it's that it is that colonial mindset of like right well you know I, i've got to win and uh, emotion is weakness etc etc that kind of crap
0: mm.
2: uh, and so people aren't really willing to enjoy themselves <laughs> or share whereas i feel like that's you know a little bit different in other places not entirely different but a little bit different
0: Have you been tempted to move to any cultures or or towns where you've had a really positive experience? I mean, you've just moved to Margate, haven't you?
2: Yes, I have moved to Margate. Margate's where I live now. I think, like, um, when I was growing up in Watford, I didn't understand why people would leave Watford and then complain about Watford. And I still don't, because I think, like, you know, you're there. You can do what you want to do with it, like... I think it's close
0: enough to London. That was the thing for me. I was like, well, how can I complain when you can get on the train for 30 minutes and you're just banging London, Houston, you could do whatever you want.
2: Yeah, exactly. I feel like there's a lot of people who 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 live in places and they go, oh, this place sucks. And that's why you get like, you know, that's, that's a genre of music in itself. And my response to that was always like, well, if you hate it, why don't you try and change it? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 100%. And so I always try to do that. But I, I live in Margate now because I couldn't afford to live in Watford anymore because uh, it's like London rent prices. And uh,
0: and you had to give up the, the LP Cafe job for that?
2: Yeah, well, I think that I, I, I kind of stopped working at the LP Cafe when I got more work driving. Mm. So I, I ended up on tour loads. Like for in 2018 and 2019... I played, like, 250 shows, um, and that's, like, not including the shows I was just driving. Wow. So I was on tour a lot, and um, couldn't couldn't really realistically hold on to a job at the cafe when I was gonna, only going to be in the country, like, two days every three months or something. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and then I think because... Uh, because of that, I think I, I think me and Megan, my wife, just decided we wanted to move somewhere that was a little bit more affordable in order to be able to carry on doing doing music and and like living in a living in a way that wasn't quite so oppressive in terms of like the cost of living. It
0: is quite looming, isn't it? I mean, I've been in London for. A- quite a few years now and I've had you know so many varying situations my rent has been really high and it's been really really low as well but even when it's low it's still kind of this art cloud over you
2: yeah a hundred percent it's so counterproductive to um creativity and like expression when you're when you're it squeezes you it does it's and like that and that's You know, that that again ties into the conversation we were having about like the way that schools operate and the focus on the academic side of things rather than the expressive side of things. Mm. It's it's, it's more difficult to monetize the expressive kind of thing, so there's less focus on it. And I think like that there shouldn't be the the different, uh, you know, there shouldn't be that gulf in um, focus on, 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 things that are expressive or things that are sort of academic in, in that case, because I think they're both equally important. But you can't You can't make money off of music easily. So I feel like I'm just saying, imagine how many amazing musicians there would be and how many amazing like acts we'd get to watch if there wasn't this financial pressure on everyone to be working all the time. Like the people and that's what, you know, there are lots of conversations around classism in music, and I think it's really important to highlight that there are people who would be touring all the time and who are incredibly hardworking musicians who who can't who who can't work hard on their music because they have to pay rent or they have to you know pay off their debt or all these kind of things in order to be able to avoid the prospect of being sent to prison, which is essentially what happens if you just if, if you just stop paying for things, that's that's how it goes, isn't it?
0: No surprise that there's so much, you know, middle class mediocrity in rock music.
2: For real. And I'm middle class. Um, me too. So I you know I but I think that it's important to acknowledge that in a meaningful way.
0: We are part of the problem, right? So yeah. we need to we we have a massive role in this.
2: For sure. And and like that's kind of how I've I've always wanted to approach nervous specifically is um and my life generally is to, to try and leave things leave, leave the leave the, the earth better than you found it. And like just just because you've had it. I think the the, the the problem that a lot of people have in, in recognising their own complicity in these various structures is that everyone has problems, right? And their inability to recognise that some people's problems are exacerbated by their identity and exacerbated by their financial situation um, is causing a, a, a big divide among people who think, well, what
0: about me? Yeah
2: but i think that that is a byproduct of the fact that capitalism is is sort of squeezing squeezing everyone's heads <laughs> it's, it's crushing everyone to to different measures and it's teaching everyone that we're all individually exceptional and like that kind of individual exceptionism basically breeds divisiveness at a point where you know people can't people can't speak up and say Black Lives Matter without someone being like, well, I've had a really difficult time this week because I couldn't do this or that. Like, are you, do you know what I mean? And I think that, that people are struggling. Um, I wonder if people
0: have an issue with being, you know, knowing when to start, being outwardly thoughtful. Because say if, like, you've lived all your life and, and you have these ethics, you know you have them within you, but then posting them online or having a conversation with a family member or a friend. I feel like that that's a step that some people find it hard to take someone who isn't a protest type person.
2: Yeah. I think that that's an issue. Like the gulf between the people who think they are good people and the people who actually act to try and change things is, 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 is one of the biggest things that needs to be overcome because I think that people, nothing nothing changes if people don't do anything and nothing changes if people don't say anything. And there's that, that, that um, old saying, I, I can't remember who said it, but power concedes nothing without a challenge. And it's true because it doesn't. Um, and I think that a lot of people are potentially, um, I don't know, the people who maybe don't want to speak up about it are... Scared of the 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 potential implications it might have for them. Colin Kaepernick was basically blacklisted from the NFL for taking a knee.
0: Isn't that fucking insane? A, a guy taking a knee.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's really important to point out that you know that that's what happened to him because he was basically you know he he was protesting police brutality against against black people and police racism and systemic racism. And he was protesting that during the National Anthem um, whenever he played um, essentially uh, in something that has the cultural significance of, like, the Premier League in the US. And he got blacklisted from it. And, like, the president would... The the president of the United States said, you know, it's it's insulting. And I think, like, four years on, because that was, like, 2016, I think, four years on to be where we are now, I think is amazing. But also I think that people are still coming to terms with the fact that that there are still some, you know, potential social implications for speaking out about stuff. Mm. For instance, the other thing I think scares people is they know that if they start challenging this stuff, a lot of people will say, a lot of people say, when I have conversations with them about this stuff, and, um, they'll say, but where does it end? But where does it end? And I think that it's really, really daft to look at it from that perspective, you, because this is where it starts. Like Rather than thinking, where does it end? As if it's something to complete or to win. Um, people people don't like the idea of having to be engaged in a process forever which is essentially what anti-racism has to be in order for it to be effective.
0: Yeah, everyone has to realise that this is a thing now that we do and we think about every day for the rest of our lives.
2: Yeah, and anything short of that is 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 not enough, essentially. And people have to be able to sit with their discomfort and also sit with their... sit and, and be aware of their ability to to cause harm, to be racist, especially if they're, if they're white people Um, and, you know, just, just be conscious and acknowledge that and let that Mm. inform, let that inform everything in terms of like, if, if you're conscious of that and that sits in your mind, then that helps. But I think people don't want to have to, you know, people think, oh, but I've already got this going on. I can't think about that as well. Which is something that needs to be addressed, but I do think that that is caused by the the sort of systemic pressure to work, um, pay rent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: I think we need to do it from a place of hope because when you do something out of hope, you know, when you work hard and anything out of hope, it doesn't feel like a cross to bear. It's quite a light thing because you're doing it out of love. Right. For me, this is something that. You know, personally, this is what I, this is how I try and act on these ethical issues: is do it out of hope. Because when you do something out of hope, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like another checklist on the thing I have to do today. You know,
2: that's it. I think people, um, people are are realizing that the pessimism that surrounds these issues is actually, uh, you know, a tool of white supremacy. So. When you talk about prison abolition, and people are like, "Oh, I just don't see that happening," the counter to that is just Im- imagine a world without prisons, or imagine a world without police, or imagine a world without landlords, or imagine a what? Wo- just just imagine it. Like allow yourself to imagine that, because if you can't do that, and you're constantly throwing up barriers to these things, um, then 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 you're going to stay within those barriers and you're going to keep other people within those barriers with you. So I think it's really important, like you say, to be optimistic rather than pessimistic when we talk about issues such as uh, abolition and police brutality and all all this kind of stuff and just take the time to imagine that and then work towards it. Because if you take the time to imagine right now a world without prisons and a world without police, how joyful is that?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people find it scary. A lot of people find it scary? Yeah, I, th- I like. I think a lot of people find that idea on its own scary.
2: Yeah, but I think that, that there are people who are detached from the idea of community as a whole. People don't know what that can look like. But, you know, I feel like that also comes from a place of, of whiteness. What's important to take from the Black Lives Matter movement is the fact that there is a call to defund the police because the police do not work in the favour of people. The peop- police work in the favour of property and capital, and they are essentially where the state meets the population because there aren't many points where the state meets the population, and the police is one of them, one of the only ones.
0: That's so true. That's so that, that relationship between state and people is non-existent apart from that one violent avenue.
2: Yeah, 100%. And I think like police won't step into, you know, I think that you know, police will come to sort out like public order offences, blah, blah, blah. But what you end up with is a criminalisation of people who otherwise don't need to be criminalised. And um, I think that a lot of people are aware of that who who aren't necessarily like white middle class people who who will say, I'm not going to call the police. I don't want to involve the police. Because nothing good will come from involving the police in this. And I think there are people stuck in the criminal justice system who have basically acclimatized to the fact that they're going to be in the criminal justice system forever. Put it this way, right? If prisons, by design, were actually meant to rehabilitate people, right, which is what they claim to do, you would see reduced rates and reoffending, but you don't. If prisons were actually rehabilitating people and acted as a deterrent to crime, why should we need to build more of them? Because if they were effective as a deterrent, you'd see a reduced rate in crime across the board. If they were effective as rehabilitation, you would see reduced rates in reoffending. So you would actually think that if prisons were doing the job that they are purported to do, we should be closing prisons because we should yeah. be having less crime we should be having less reoffending and we should have le- less need for prisons if prisons were doing what they're supposed to be doing they would be self defeating because it's a business yeah exactly and that's why we're getting four new massive prisons built in the uk i just
0: watched the night of and you know it's a fictionalized drama court case drama and i think that's that's such an interesting thing because guy goes to jail and in order to survive in jail he has to become a criminal and you don't just leave the criminal world do you
2: no you don't
0: you have that tag with you forever but also you have that way of living that other people in that situation don't want to you know you're, you're in business now you know doesn't doesn't go
2: yeah for sure i think that there's um People think that the people who are in prison are in prison because they did something completely unacceptable and that they should stay in prison and that they should never be allowed out. Right. But there are people in prison who are in there because they haven't paid their TV license. Yeah. Um, and like I have seen with my own eyes and through my own experience, right. You don't pay a fine. The fine doubles and if you can't afford to pay the fine the first time and the fine doubles what makes them think you're going to be able to afford it when it's doubled so I I've had points where I've had bailiffs in my house sitting in my front room or whatever and like I'm having to stump up 400 pounds for a fine that was originally 25 and people could say well you should have paid it when it was cheap I didn't have the money to pay it at that point The money didn't suddenly appear when it became twice as expensive. The money didn't suddenly appear when it had a £200, you know, admin fee added to it. And I was lucky that I was able to convince an employer to forward me my wages (laughs) and uh, pay off the bailiffs that were actually in my house in order to be able to pay this debt off. Um, But if that hadn't happened, it would have been like, you know, repossession of things. And if I couldn't, if I couldn't, you know, make up the money with repossession of my possessions, then it would have gone to court. And if it had gone to court, I could have been in prison. And like, it's only through avoiding something marginally through uh, a failure to be able to engage with the system that is so oppressive and so relentless that you can kind of understand... To an extent, how easy it is for people to end up criminalised and going round and round and round in the justice system forever. When really, all they've done is, you know, um, not paid, you know, not paid a fine. And it's slow—the
0: slow turning wheels of the justice system. You know, and that's so much time to convince yourself that you're a bad person as well.
2: Definitely. And I think that when you end up in when you end up in prison, you you know there you have to. Adapt to the environment you're living in to be able to survive. And a lot of time that involves
0: Becoming a criminal.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or doing things that are deemed illegal.
0: Yeah. Um, Pushing you further, further into a place where you cannot be redeemed.
2: Yeah. So it's not it's not uh you know it's not fit for purpose.
0: And it's been a it's been a good chat. I mean, even if this, you know, topic that we're ending on is it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes because it's hard to be so upset with something that you know we've been born into. I suppose you know.
2: Yeah, I think that it's just one of those things that we shouldn't be upset about. We should just acknowledge and try to um, get rid of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on one hundred and one part-time jobs. Oh, you all right.
2: Yeah, sorry, I just moved the laptop across the table. I said thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I I i uh, it's been an illuminating chat for me. Good. I well, don't know what don't know why I say that. I'm not <laughs> on radio not on radio four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you up to? What are you, what are you what are your plans for the next few weeks? Any exciting, nervous things happening?
2: Well we're we're writing at the moment. I'm currently a delivery driver for a supermarket. Um so I'm working a lot, but I think like yeah. We'll be, we'll be releasing a, a split at some point soon. I can't really reveal much more than that. Um, but we've, we've, re- we've released two EPs um, that we've, we've written and recorded in complete isolation. Um, one called We Want Your Blood and Grave Digging, and the other one called What If The Problem Was You and Cut It Out, which you can get on our band if you so if you so choose.
0: There's a very big ACDC vibe
2: on one of those. Oh my god! Yeah, cut it out. Right, fun, isn't it?
0: It's sick. It's so good.
2: <laughs> I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do a big riff. Because that—that's that, one thing that's been great as well is like making these, making the, like recording without being, without being even in the same room as the people you're in is quite it's quite fun. Um, completely different to how we did Tough Crowd, but yeah, big riffs. But yeah, we've got more. We've got more music coming out soon, which is cool because it keeps us busy. You know, great. Cool. Thank you so much, Em. Thanks for having me. Have a lovely day. See you later.
0: Bye. Have been working all down- This is a Mighty Moon Media podcast.
1: Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz. And I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.